everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 245 for November 8th, 2021. And today I've got an interview, uh, one that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I finally found the perfect person to do it, and it all just kind of came together. Coincidentally, right around election time here in the United States, we just had some off-year elections that made the news. But we're still very focused, unfortunately, on last year's election. And we have a real problem here in the United States with our election systems. But it's, it turns out it's not really the problem that most people think it is. The most pressing problem I think that we have is not that our elections are rigged. It's that everybody believes that they're rigged. And the reality is actually quite different. And we're going to talk about that today with... None other than Hari Hursti, who is a Finnish security guru and election supervisor and expert who has done it all. I mean, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Uh, he's been the subject of not one, but two different HBO documentaries on election security. The first one was back in 2006 called Hacking Democracy. And the other one's called Kill Chain, which was, uh, came out in 2020. And so, you know, there's nothing, arguably nothing more fundamental to any democracy than voting and elections. It's like the bedrock of the whole system, right? And if you don't trust that, what do you have? Well, you have problems is what you, <laughs> is what you have. Now, this is, you know, 2020 was not the first time we've had problems. In fact, a lot of where we are today came because of the 2000 Al Gore versus George Bush debacle uh, that all came down to the recounts in Florida and the Supreme Court and some weird things that happened during that election. We're going to get into all of that today with Hari. Now, a couple of real quick things I want to define before we get into this. We talk about the Help America Vote Act, uh, HAVA, and that came from that 2000 election. It was passed in 2002. Uh, and part of that law created the Election Assistance Commission, or the EAC. Hari makes a reference or two to that. He also mentions the IT department, and that is probably a term that I myself am guilty of throwing around without defining terribly often. But basically, IT is for information technology, that big companies, this is the group that helps you with your computers, among other things. They should also be doing security, but they don't always do, as Ari will point out today in our interview. Also, he mentions the DMCA, or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I think that was 1998. It's honestly a horrific bill. We've talked about it in the show many times before in other contexts, but it has kind of given a lot of manufacturers this carte blanche way of preventing their systems from being independently tested. Basically, they say, well, the software is copyrighted. So if you, according to this new law, if you try to circumvent our copyright, that's a crime punishable by at least fines, if nothing else. And so it's prevented a lot of worthwhile security research, not the least of which is for election systems. But fortunately, we got around that too. And we'll talk about that today as well. But we're going to focus a lot today on trust and election systems and, and how so much of what we're doing now is electronic and how a lot of those electronic devices, like any electronic devices, are hackable. And yet, we still have the head of CISA, the Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency in the United States, Chris Krebs, back in the, in the day, he's no longer in that office, who said that you know 2020 was the most secure election in U.S. history. How can those things be true? How do we reconcile those two concepts? So that is what we're going to talk about today. It's so supremely important, and I could not have had a better guest. 
One more quick thing before we start. Toward the end of this interview, in the background, you're going to hear a siren. So I know that kind of drives me nuts when I hear it because I'm wondering where that's coming from. And so if you hear that and you're, you want to be absolutely sure, just pause this and you'll understand that it's probably coming from the podcast. Uh, but anyway, just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. All right. So anyway, with that, let's get to our interview with Hari Hursty. <laughs> Ari Hursty is a Finnish computer programmer and a hacker who has been featured in two different documentaries on election security and has run the voting machine hacking village at the DEF CON conference. He's also the co-founder of the Election Integrity Foundation. Hari, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I cannot tell you how much I've been looking forward to this interview, and it's never been more important, and it's obviously something on the minds of most of the populace here in the United States. And I will apologize. I know I have somewhat international audience, but I think it's important for everybody to understand these things. And so uh, I'm not going to be ashamed at all by focusing on the U.S. elections for, the, for this interview. Obviously, in a democracy, nothing is more fundamental than voting, making each vote count and counting each vote. Today in the United States, many people have, for one reason or another, completely lost trust in our ability to securely record and accurately count the votes in our most important elections. So you know, for on one hand, we were told by Chris Krebs, who's the former head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, who, by the way, was a lifelong Republican. We were told that by him that the 2020 elections were the most secure in American history. And yet at the same time, you know, we and you in particular uh, know that our voting systems are woefully insecure and, and inadequately vetted. Uh, so today, I really want to try to figure that out. I want to kind of dive into our election security in the United States, better understand truly how secure and we are, and what we can do to maybe restore trust in the U.S. election system. And that's a tall order. Okay, before we start, and I think I, I'm kind of pedantic about this. I want to kind of understand, I think it's important for the audience to understand the kind of the basic mechanics and logistics of how an election in the United States works. You know, and so, and what the potential weak points are before we kind of get into that. So, you know, there's you know, how the voting systems are selected, how they're tested, how they're prepared, you know, the voting process itself, you know, what kind of ballots we choose, what kind of recording mechanisms we have, how we tabulate and report those votes. And then kind of crucially, certainly for the trust factors, how we kind of keep a chain of custody on these things, how we re you know record these things for your potential future audits. I want to kind of walk through that process linearly, chronologically, and, and kind of pick it apart. Let's start with before the election ever happens, because I think a lot of people focus on the voting itself and maybe the tabulating, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on before we even get to that, right? First of all, how, how do we run our elections? Who gets to run the elections? Is it federal? Is it state? Is it a mix of both? Is it even down to the county? Who gets to choose the election systems? Let, let's talk a little bit about that first. So first of all, let me touch the point which you, you made a great point about how many systems there are. We are in a current situation where we are because of Help America Vote Act of 2002. Uh, we had an embarrassing election, uh, hanging chat, pregnant chat, whatnot, and America did what America does, uh, which is throwing a lot of money in the problem. Right. Well, at the time when the money was throwing the problem, there was no standards. There still are no standards about security. So everybody went to the future shop and bought whatever they were able to buy. And the problem at the time was that in 2002, everything that was sold are basically systems which are designed by definition in late 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. That's really the time frame. So those are systems which are come from a completely different era. They were from the time when cyber warfare was bad science fiction. Nobody mm -hmm. would have understood what cyber warfare as a term is. And those who heard the term thought it's a science fiction. 
So these machines are designed from that era. But not only that, but also the computerization way, way further than just the voting machines. So there's a myriad of systems, and we will touch the whole line in a moment. Mm-hmm. But while the money was given to the jurisdictions, jurisdictions didn't have access to the funding and resources and knowledge, which led in the current situation massive outsourcing. We have in our head a thinking that there's an election office and the election office has a IT department and the IT department has security practice. (laughs) If we look how much technology has been pouring since 2002 into the election office, it should be a humongous IT department with a strong security practice, which just happens to do elections, not the other way around. Mm. And the reality is most of the jurisdictions don't even have a one not even one permanent IT person. Mm. A lot of the things on election night, in, in, in especially in smaller jurisdictions, are run by volunteers, part-time, everything is outsourced. Only the larger jurisdictions have the luxury of having per- permanent IT stuff. And as we all know, IT stuff is there for keeping the lights on and running the operations. IT people, generally speaking, are not very good in security and even have a controversial idea about security people because security people make their life, generally speaking, harder. Right. So right. this is the situation. Now, again, in election, elections are run locally. And there are two different kinds of states. There are bottom-up and top-down. When you're in a top-down state, that means that the secretary of state has a lot of control uh, over the election, uh, how it's run, how the systems are chosen, and one of the current most controlled by central controlled uh, systems are, is, is Georgia, where the Secretary of State really was able to mm-hmm. choose one system, is controlling the subcontracting, is doing all of that. On a bottom-up state, the Secretary of State have very little control over the counties. The counties are basically saying, well, we do whatever we want. The Secretary of State may be able to give them a list. You have to choose from these systems. But after that, they don't really have a much of control. And it's not atypical in that kind of uh, states that the counties, even if Secretary of State wants to run a secondary review, the counties say, you're not welcome. They refuse to get the help paid by Secretary of State. They refuse to respond to Secretary of State's requests. Hmm. So that's the other extreme. Also from a legality point of view, in most states, you have a you have a state law, state election law, but there are local laws which are superseding these the state law so you cannot even trust uh, that the state law is the, is the, is the in control and the federal laws in elections are really a very top level they are voting rights they are general things but there are no detailed federal laws because it's a state rights issue mm-hmm. even furthermore the certification of voting machines which is done on a state level some of them are believing that the federal agency called EAC, which was uh, founded and, and enacted by Help America Vote Act, is actually doing a security testing. The security is almost non-existing in the current testing. And what EAC is doing is it's called Volunteer Voting System Guidelines. So first of all, it's not standard. It's not mm-hmm. regulation. It's guideline. Mm-hmm. And the first word volunteer tells it all. It is right. not mandatory to do, be done a certain way. And the system works in a way that the voting system vendor pays the testing lab to do the testing. Mm. Obvious conflict of interest, right. if you think that way. Right. So that's how the overall look 
Also, the EAC is only looking into the voting system itself. As mentioned, since 2002, massive amount of other systems have been pouring into the, the, the system. Some states have enacted their own regulation standards, most no. So the, the whole spectrum of system, systems is, is very poorly or very sparsely regulated. And there are humongous differences between, not only between the states, but even between the counties within the state. And that's one great source of confusion, because it seems to be, it's a very bizarre idea for me, but it seems to be that average, average American doesn't really have the knowledge how different the different states are. Mm. So when any argument brings up, they are assuming the elections are run similar way or mm. same way mm-hmm. yeah. across yeah. the U.S. And that's nothing could be further from the truth. So I, I've actually heard that brought up as a kind of a backhanded compliment to our system is that it's so heterogeneous that it would be hard to hack because everyone does it differently. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to try to hack an election, it's just too difficult. There's, there's too many different systems. What, what's your response to that? That is a argument which can be derived for lack of understanding of, of how security works from the adversary point of view. Mm. The argument that you cannot hack the election because it's so diversified systems is assuming you have to hack everything. But that is not the case. The margin of victory is very, very small. So now you don't have to hack all the systems. You have to hack systems enough to conquer that margin of victory without leaving a suspicious trail. That means that the diversity actually is a menu for an adversary. Because now the adversary can look, well, what is the easiest way? What I know how to do? And attack those places because it's enough. If the margin of victory would be large, then the diversity is benefiting security. Where the margin of victory is small, then the diversity is against the security. And that's that's very important to understand. Right. But that's the, yeah, that is very often missed in, in the conversation, that the margin of victory, which has got narrower and narrower, is actually the determining factor whether this argument is true or not. And clearly... In number of cases, in number of states, it's not true because the margin of victory is less than a percent. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, we have this notion of swing states and even swing counties in this country. And as we've seen in several elections in just the last couple of decades, there's been, they've been decided extremely closely. And if, yeah, so if you were going to hack an election, all you really need to do is focus on a very couple key areas, right? As you're saying. So, but the other thing that kind of goes against this diversity argument is they're really, while we argue that there's, and there might be very diverse, because as you say, there, you know, each of these states and even counties can kind of decide how they run their elections. There are only, what, two or three different companies in the, in the U.S. that actually make voting systems? So today, after a consolidation of this market, basically the market is dominated by two players. There's a third one which is still sizable enough that it could be considered. There are actually many other vendors who have a one county or very low number of counties. But the major the major market is dominated effectively by three players. Now, that doesn't mean that these three players actually have constructed the machines used. For example, if you look at old Diebold machines, Diebold was changed the name to be Premier. And first of all, all the Diebold machines were not designed by Diebold because Mm. Diebold themselves was acquiring different companies. Now, 
Today, after Depot changed the name to Premier, it was acquired by ESNS. The Department of Justice uh, intervened and forced ESNS to divest comp- uh, the, mm. uh, part of the assets to Dominion. Mm-hmm. So today, when you look at an old Depot machine, it can be serviced by either ESNS or Dominion. And again, in, in a public argument, it seems to be that the outcry is to claim all default machines are Dominion machines. That's nothing would be further for the truth. So that's that's one part. The second part is there's bigger risk than having just three voting machine companies in the US, and that's the outsource. This is something which we didn't really have to worry in a scale until 2008 financial crisis. And after that, this has become a larger, larger problem. Uh, there is unknown number, but about 30 companies which are in reality running the U.S. elections. They are local companies, usually one company is serving between one to four states. They are locally owned. They are usually locally located. They are between the vendor and the, the counties. And they are, especially in bottom-up uh, counties, they are, they are programming the elections for the counties. I was recently working for a secretary of state, and in that state, they have over 100 counties. When we went through the counties, we found out that two of the counties did their own election, only two. Everybody else has outsourced all the mission-critical parts to two companies, depending which system they were using. These companies had no requ- no whatsoever re- requirement to report. And actually, in this case, secretary of state, it was bottom-up bottom state. The Secretary of State was vaguely aware that these two companies exist, but not at all understanding or acknowledging the scale they are operating. And the reason was that whenever a county got a questionnaire for Secretary of State, the county didn't know how to answer. So they passed the paper directly to the outsourcing partner. And the outsourcing partner filled it up, conveniently leaving their own name out. So all of a sudden you have this growing problem from security point of view, which has been growing invisibly to the policymakers and even in a, in a state-level uh, top executives. Now, the interesting thing was I was asking, I, I met the, the CEO of another one of these companies, and I was asking how you do your security. I was asking, well, how, how big is your, your churn rate of employees? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that was we are located in this state and we know everybody here and, you know, we will be knowing everybody who are, you know, who do you date in high school? I said, well, what is your, what is your, your turnover of the employees? Well, uh, this is a university state. The people come out of the state and they are for a few years here and after that they move on. So we have a, a wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, a first state is a small state and you know everyone. And right. now you say that Massimo, your employees are from out of state. <laughs> so how you do your background check? And there was a long pause. And then the answer was saying, well, we ran a credit check of one guy like a oh, few geez. years ago. So they had no idea. There was no background check whatsoever. And these people are then in reality running the election. And so I don't like any of the voting system vendors today, mm. just none. But there are other problems. So if we look a single-handedly only the voting system vendors as the problem, we are missing the big picture largely. The other part is back to your original question. So when the election starts, you have you have the statewide voter registration database, which contains 
everybody who have voted in the last 10 years in the election, whatnot. Right. You have data flows coming in. Remember the voter registration is a grassroots operations in, in uh, widely in the US. So there are associations who are registering voters. There are associations who are looking into suspiciously duplicated voters, ask them to be removed suspiciously, mm-hmm. claiming that this person right. has moved out of state. Purges, yeah, voter purges, yeah. Then these data flows has to be got into the state one registration database. And by the way, sometimes, the, again, in some states, that database is run by the state. In some states, it's run by the county. It depends mm-hmm. whether you are bottom-up or top-down county, the mm-hmm. state. So it's not always, the state one database is not always anything else than consolidation of data after the fact. The actual data might be living in a county level. Mm. Anyway, so there are a number of vendors who are selling that software and that services. And some, some states still have that as a their own production, which they have made themselves. So there's a massive spectrum of quality in that system. Okay. Then if, if, in case you have an electronic poll book system, so you have replaced the physical paper mm. poll book, now you have the poll book vendors. And only one of the vendors is selling both voting machines and electric poll books, which they have made themselves. So there is another group of companies which have been, which are not involved. Voting system vendors are not doing the statewide databases. The people who are doing electric poll books are not the same as voting system vendors or the electronic, uh, the statewide database. So that's a second group of companies which are providing that, that element. Then you have the election management system. Election management system is doing everything from ballot design to districting to programming the voting machines, all of that. So that's next. And the election management systems are typically coming from the voting system vendor. Mm. So that's the second one. Uh, but this part is very often by numbers, if you look at the number of jurisdictions, more often than not, is actually already in a physical premises of the outsource company. So the whole management, the critical part of security part of management is now outsourced to these, mm. these companies. Anyway, so then you have the management system and programs, the voting machines, the voting happens, ballots get printed, ballot marking devices are again, yet another element in this, which is new, new upcoming. So then whether you're voting by hand-marked paper ballot or the uh, computer, whether the computer is called touchscreen voting or ballot marking device, doesn't really matter. It's another computer between the Mm -hmm. voter and your vote. Then you have the voting terminals. And now we get to the tallying. So now one way or another, and in some places this doesn't happen, but most places you upload the votes to the central tabulation system in a county level, which will then produce the county results. Fine. The next system over that is election night reporting. That's another set of companies which have nothing to do with the previous company. So now you are uploading the data to the election night reporting. Mm-hmm. And again, from the legal standpoint, election night reporting has no legal standing mm. whatsoever. It is mm. just for unofficial results. Okay. And for that reason, nobody has been paying attention to this area because it is it doesn't have a legal standing. Mm. However, from the eyes of a media, eyes mm-hmm. of the general public, they right. don't understand the difference. Right. And there's a number of examples when overnight the, the results change, for example, in Ghana, you have a riots and you have a real life suffering as a consequence. So even when that system doesn't have a legal standing, it has a public consequences and public trust. Right. Consequences. Now, again, when you look 
the current arguments about a, a clarity or or side of reporting, that's a one-way street. This is really where you are just throwing the results to the reporting system, but the actual results are not coming back from the reporting system. Hmm. So a lot of the arguments around that, which are now ranging across the U.S., they are just nonsensical and, and can be derived either by lack, complete lack of understanding how this works or deliberate uh, misinformation to confuse the public by making statements which, in a common sense, might be making sense, but they are not real. Um, right. So that's that's the next thing. Then, of course, after this happens, the whole canvassing and adjudication and eventually the final results are come. On the sidelines, you have a lot of other systems. You have a signature verification systems. Mm. You have the mail-in ballot tracking systems. Again, campaign financing is sometimes uh, in a county level, sometimes on a state level where you those databases live. Last time I'm going to try to figure out and make a list of all the systems which live on the election environment so that they are either run by county or by the state level. I ended up a list of over 35 different systems. Not all wow. 35 are in every place, but different right. systems. And I don't think that's a complete list. I don't think it's a complete list. But that gives you an idea how many different systems there are. And the reality is they are all affecting. Uh, if you have a, a campaign financing database with the wrong data, that can reflect negative to a candidate. If you if you have a mess up in electronic ballpark system, you can either disfranchise voters or you can at least cause a long lines and, and make people to be unable to vote because if they have a very limited time to vote on Tuesday, that's, you know, three hour light might be too long for you. Right. So every single system of these has a still a national security level consequence if it gets hacked. So again, when we are talking about specifically vote casting and tallying, it is this tiny fraction of the, the whole picture. But it gets worse because, of course, there's a lot of diversity in these systems, and that allows so-called experts to uh, make wild, wild statements and, and blatantly false statements just to confuse the public mm, who sure. knows doesn't know. And that's, that's really the problem is, is education. Uh, yeah. We would be so much better if we would educate the population so that they understand how the system works how the system works overall, and then where the laws are, what are included in the laws, what is local, what is state, what is federal, and in the place where I live, how this place is organized. Is, is the boss my county or is the, the secretary of state? That's basically almost ev everywhere that. And again, it goes a little bit further. For example, I designated by the attorney general and secretary of state of New Hampshire, to conduct a audit in a small place called Windham. Okay. One of the it was blown completely out of proportion. The the audit had nothing to do with the presidential race. It was all about a state representative in Rockham County seven. So it's it was a eight candidates vote for four, and it's it's a local state rep. That was okay. the, the audit. What it was for? It was for a award which was ten thousand uh, six thirteen thousand voters. 10,000 ballots cast. Okay. This was reported widely in the news as this would be in the whole state and whatnot originally. It was that tiny thing. Okay. Now, even bigger one was there was a claims by made by a certain individual 
that there's a record how uh, the whole New Hampshire election was hacked by Chinese or whatnot. Mm. Well, that's a great, very great idea because in New Hampshire, there are 320 wards and townships and whatnot who are running the election. Okay. 123 had nothing computer. It's purely manual. So the whole claim, again, made by this certain individual and his team, it's nonsensical because this guy didn't even know that out of, 100 and, uh, out of 320, 123 don't even have a computer. <laughs> so there's nothing to hack. Right. Well, you, you touched on so many points there. And I think that I think you're right in that it's so complex and there's so much behind it that most people do not understand that it's that it just makes it that much easier for somebody who wants to confound the issues and kind of distract. All conspiracies have some, you know, grain of truth, or right? it's something that you can hang it on and then and go from there. And when it's so confusing, when it's so complicated, and when it's so frankly hidden, it's much easier to do these things. So, uh, and we'll we'll talk about solutions here in a little bit. And I, and I think transparency is going to be one of them. But I want to circle back to something that, that a point I wanted to make about these all these systems. And I was not I was not aware that there's that many systems. Ironically, there's there's all these different companies involved in these things, but every one of these companies, to my understanding, is they're all proprietary, they, which is to say that they they hire out to, to a company of their choosing, somebody to quote unquote vet their systems, which, as you said, is an inherent conflict of interest. We, you know, as the the populace, the, the constituents, have no real way to get true independent third party verification of these systems. First of all, how is that? How can that be that we in the United States do not allow for true third party vetting of these systems and how do, how do we fix that? So we really are right now uh, seeing the consequence of Help America Vote Act and how back then Bush administration implemented everything from the law. And if you go back to news those days, you saw that the administration was making claim that elections need more innovation and regulation mm. is the enemy of innovation. So the idea was, uh, let's abolish the regulation because there was more regulation about security before 2002. Let's abolish this regulation and let the industry go wild oh, and innovate. So this mm. was this is not an accident. This is intentional. Mm. I don't think this was an evil idea. Right, it was right. just nobody thought through what the consequences and ramifications will be. Right. It is mind blowing to me that the voting system vendors can claim that their property system contains trade secrets. Because in my mind, the specification how the system works is called the law. <laughs> so you shouldn't be doing things that are not right. in the law. So this it's very hard to understand where this, this argument comes from and how that can be said. You cannot see how we are implementing the law when the question is really, we want to see that you are implementing the law. And so hence the specification question becomes a very thorny. Uh, but yeah, in my opinion, you should never ever buy a voting system. No country in the world should buy a voting system for a foreign country. And voting systems should be open source, allowing everybody to inspect the code and see how it works yeah. and, and have, have questions. And that's the reason why there have been a recently few initiatives in the United States to develop an open source voting system and do that. However, before I got along in this, this discussion in 2005, there was a belief that 
the Holy Grail is the source open source. A Holy Grail is a source code review that mm. by looking the source code, you can determine mm. is the system trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And that is wrong. That's just not how it works. And that was one of the first things I proved is that, yes, open source is, in my opinion, better than not open source, right. but it's not nearly enough. That's not the Holy Grail because you still have all the hardware, you have all the software which is coming to run the, the, the drivers, whatnot. So you can never, you, even if you could see all the software, which you cannot, then you are still ending up in a situation where you can't trust the hardware. And actually, when you look at the older systems, like the first system which I hacked, if you would have only looked the source code and didn't know how the hardware works, the source code itself would have been misleading. Mm. So you have to have an understanding in these systems. And as a result, every voting system can be hacked now and in the future. So there will be no unhackable system in our foreseeable future, which right. means absolutely we have to improve the security as much as we can. But the key is to verify the results. And thank God we have a professor Philip Stark was, was one of the persons who conceived and formalized a method called risk-limiting audit, which is a very low workforce requiring a task to run with a random sample of ballots to verify that the outcome of the election is correct. It doesn't mean that the, the result to the last vote is accurate, but you, the, the election had the right outcome. The, the election chose the right winners. And so what we really need is a system which is making and this requires both the physical system and the, the voting system, something which facilitates this process to be as easy to conduct as possible. Again, we have to assume that the computer who is and the system which is, which is going to help you is still going to be dishonest. So you right. have to design it against that, right. but it is possible. So we know how to do this. This is not a rocket surgery. We have had the knowledge how to do this for a long time. So we need to implement that. And again, uh, my, my belief is that uh, the two key things to secure the whole voting infrastructure, not only the voting message, is a open research. And open research means that you are giving ac- you're given access to independent researchers, whether they are volunteers or whether they are paid by, for example, a, a federal money, it doesn't matter idea here is that everybody who wants to do a research and, and possesses certain you know basic qualifications have a one way or another to participate in the research. Open source would be helpful in this, mm-hmm. but it's not necessary, but I would really prefer open source. But as I said, open source alone is not the, it's not the solution. It right. is a building block. I mean, there's a lot of open source software out there today that we all use, and it's full of bugs too. I mean, so all software has bugs. So the only the advantage of having open source is at least you have the opportunity for someone else to find those bugs uh, who might be independently looking for them. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk solutions. Uh, risk limiting audits is a big one. Let's talk a little bit about the Hacking Village, and this is something that started in DEF CON, I think, 25. Uh, anyway, not not that long ago, you started the Voting Hacking Village, and you found several really interesting things, but. One of the things I want to touch on before we get into, and I want you to kind of talk about some of the key findings you've made, is getting a hold of those systems in the first place. Because again, these companies are not offering these to you, right? I mean, my understanding, a lot of times you had to go to eBay or, and in the the most recent uh, HBO documentary, you find an interesting warehouse where you're able to buy some of these things kind of wholesale in a second market. 
talk to us about how you set the village, how you get the machines that you actually, I mean, I don't know if they finally started volunteering machines or not, but I know they didn't originally. And what you what were some of the key findings you've, you've made over the last few years? First of all, the reason why voting machine hacking village, which we are now calling voting village, why it became possible was because of a digital millennium copyright act, the security research exempt. So I was one of the people who were writing a position paper when every three years, so there's a trillennial review of copyright act where we were asking a exempt for a bona vide secular research of certain kind of devices, voting machines, consumer electronics, medical equipment, cars, you know, these kind of things. So we get the exempt. Hmm. And without that, we couldn't have done voting bills. Just full stop there. Well, once we got the exempt, we were starting to look, well, where to get the voting machines? And, you know, quick search, eBay. We found a lot of those in eBay. And we found a government surplus stores, which are selling. And I even have a one set of voting machines, which I paid $0. I just had to pay $1 to get the buyer's certificate. Because I always want to prove that everything I have has been legally obtained. Sure. Anyway, the reason why in a movie we have that warehouse is because of voting system vendors. So when we announced that we will have this voting system in the village, one of the vendors sent a letter to all their customers, all secretary of state and whatnot, and claimed that they will take legal action against us because we have few stolen voting machines. We have illegally obtained those. We have a few stolen machines which we have bought from the criminals. And hence, we are by extension criminals mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this is like expletive. It's like, no, this is BS. So that's why we went to film this warehouse where there's over a thousand unsold voting machines and the guy is selling them on cash to everyone and, and willing to ship them overseas. Uh, that's the only reason why that segment was because of the claim right. that we have somehow illegally obtained mm. these voting machines. Well, after that, we there had been a constant tug of war. We have been threatened with illegal actions, with the craziest legal theories. One of the legal theories was to say that in the demonstration, uh, a the voting machine lock was picked, that that is a copyright violation. And because we have violated the copyright there, then the DMCA is not exempt. Mm. And, you know, we just have to go and say, first of all, this lock is so old that it actually hasn't doesn't have any copyright or patent anymore. It's all expired. Second thing is we bought the machines with the keys. So this was just uh, to show that it also can be, we, we had the keys. Mm-hmm. And after that next year, I bought a massive amount of those keys and gave them all journalists who wanted to have their own keys. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they are standard keys. The most common lock we use in the, in the voting machine is the same, which is the most common minibar hotel key. So it's actually <laughs> literally the same key with the same key coding. Oh my God. So, so that's why I just went to buy and uh, bought the most common Oh, that's funny. Mini bar key. And that's the same key. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Anyway, uh, so that's the that's the history. And and right now, we really need the open research. And that's something what uh, I hope that we can get in place next year. Now, DEFCON is not 
about hacking the voting machine. That's the funniest thing of this. We are not security research at all. We can help to do that, but we are not. So DEFCON was started uh, voting list as an educational effort. We knew that every voting machine we have can be hacked. Mm -hmm. That was not the point. The point was that there was a lot of misinformation and wrong claims in the public claiming that they cannot be hacked. Uh, so we were there to allowing people to come to see with their own eyes. And one thing what we made me so happy the first year, we already first year have a lot of local election officials and local election officials are the first and often only line of defense. If a foreign country will invade our, our continent, the U.S. and roll with the, with, the, with the boats and tanks, we will not be asking a local sheriff to fend off the foreign invasion army. Mm. But in elections, you actually, the local election officials are defending the fort against, mm. for example, foreign adversaries, also domestic adversaries. So it's a very asymmetric warfare. Anyway, in this situation, having the local election official who had the technical knowledge but because of contract other reasons, have been never able to inspect the very machine they use to run their own elections. Now they were able to come to the voting village, mm -hmm. open that machine first time and say, oh, okay, uh, what I'm missing? Like, this, is, this can't be true. I said, well, you have your screwdriver, you open it yourself, you know now the facts. And so first year we had less than 100. Next year we had 400 local election officials to show up. And we started doing unhack the ballots and, and a cyber search pairing a hackers, certified and, and, and qualified hackers with the local election officials so that they can advise them and help them to secure their elections. So we have been all the time, our main mission is educational and helping. And the fact that we found every year vulnerabilities, that is a pure accident. That's not the goal. It actually even shouldn't happen, but mm. it happens. And also most of the people coming to voting village don't know what has already been done. So they don't know if they find a vulnerability that mm. this is known vulnerability already, but they usually find a completely new way to get into that. So it's still valuable because they find, oh, nobody thought, I mean, this is like the accidental weaponization kind of part where they find a new way because they have a different background, new way to do it. But again, DEFCON is, is only two and a half days, once a year. Mm. And uh, the foundation, nonprofit behind the voting village, we can organize open research. We can organize, we actually organize a voting village kind of things, uh, for example, in a military training environment where we can train a cyber warriors to understand this problem. So we do a lot of activities which are not in, in DEFCON, but we are only there for two and a half days. And as the current director of cyber, he wasn't in that role of NSA, uh, say back then, he made the comment when there was a criticism against the voting village that we are potentially enabling a foreign adversaries to see voting mm. machines. He would say, first of all, if you don't understand that every adversary country has this kind of room running 24-7, 365 days a year, right. you are not understanding this. These guys are here two and a half days, half day, all day. There are these kind of operations run 24-7 in adversary countries. But the second part is that most of the U.S. election machines are not from U.S. So they are actually have a not only a supply chain components, but in software 
one of the biggest machines. It's, uh, it's, it's developed in Serbia. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not even U.S. origin. So in a sense, also, the foreign people who don't know what is the, inside the voting machine has been U.S. citizens and U.S. people because by these, these things, it has been blocking the visibility. And there has been only two independent large voting system studies. Uh, California top the bottom review and uh, Secretary of State Ohio Everest study. And these both were done in 2006-2007. There has been no consequence study after those two studies. Mm-hmm. So first of all, when we started voting machine, hacking village, before that there was a very small group of people in the United States. Me, was I was one of them and my co-founder was another one. There were very few people who actually have seen all of this. Mm-hmm. So we have single-handedly hundredfold, if not thousandfold, hundreds of folds, or if not thousandfold, the number of people who now know and know the, the facts. That's the first thing what we did in, in the education. But second sad part is even when those studies, the California Adopt the Button Review and Everest were done over a decade ago, they're still relevant because the vendors have not changed the software. They haven't batched all the vulnerabilities. And even if the vendors have been making a batch, most of the places haven't implemented so all, all of those vulnerabilities which we documented and published decade ago are still relevant today. And would you ever use an unpatched 15-year-old PC? Well, that's what the voting systems are. Right. Now, we've, we've talked about all the potential issues with these things. And yet, again, and this is, I think, the really confusing part about all of this is there is... Because we have this grain of truth, because we understand that these machines are inherently hackable, because really, honestly, anything anything is hackable. And yet, we still have the head of CISA saying that the 2020 election was the most secure ever. So which is it? Is it is the problem that we've identified potential ways to hack elections, but that we have not proved that any have been hacked? Or is, that we, is it unprovable? Because I know we haven't really talked about this yet, but I want to talk about it now. Direct recording DRE machines. There is no audit trail. One thing about that Florida election we talked about, there was at least a paper ballot you could have gone back to to verify. And in many cases, in the United States, there's not. So is it that we are potentially hackable, but we're still secure because we haven't been hacked? Or is it that we have been hacked, we don't know it? <laughs> How do we reconcile these two, these, these two concepts? So first of all, let's talk about the statement by Chris Krabs. So I personally agree that the statement is in the right direction. I think the 2020 election was most secure recent election. I wouldn't say most secure in the history of the United States, but most secure recent election Okay. with a multiple reasons. First of all, it was closely watched. There haven't been similar scrutiny and oversight before. And I mean, almost a year before election, already first botnet set up by a foreign nation before coronavirus was started, was taken down by one of the tech companies who found it. So there, there was a lot of effort and, and people were awake. That's a very important part, number one. The second thing is that I'm making a, it's not the real joke, it's a half joke, but also partially the election was secured by coronavirus. The most vulnerable and insecure systems are the DREs, which are unauditable. And those were supposed to be used to cast 13% of the votes if they wouldn't have been coronavirus. Hmm. That all changed because of the coronavirus and, and implementing mail-in voting. Hmm. And again, in mail-in voting, we have to put a something in the context. Mail-in voting 
is the only method, method of voting in five states, which are both red and blue states. Mail-in voting is 150 years old. It has been used in Vietnam War, in Korean War, in Second World War, in the First World War, and in the Revolutionary War, where there was a little bit of problems in domestic state. So <laughs> we we do understand the problems of mail-in voting. And by the way, there is problems. I personally don't think we should go mail-in voting as a way but not because of hacking. It's more a problems with the domestic area. You vote a coercion, mm-hmm. vote buying and vote selling. Mm-hmm. It's all local. It's you, my spouse took my ballot kind of a situation. Right. So I don't think we should be continuing to do mail-in voting as the only method, but I think mail-in voting as a stopgap is needed and also mail-in vote is accessible. So mail-in voting will always have a role. It has have, had a role for 150 years. And remember also that the mail-in voting database is the same database which would have been used for in, in-person voting. Right. So all the claims saying, well, wrong people were voting, well, that would have been the same case also mm. in in-person. It's the same data set behind it. So in order to address what Chris said, we have an expert re- letter where over 50 experts sign it and and we we put it out very very early after the election saying that we are looking constantly of all the possible claims uh which are put out and incredible uh extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence Mm. so yes we have seen problems and we have found problems but none of the problems are large enough to change the outcome of the election that's the uh, the audit which I was doing in New Hampshire. There, the vote difference was 300 votes. There we knew we have a problem. In that one race, four Republicans got elected. One of the Democratic candidates, she was very close to get the last seat. Uh, in New Hampshire, you can always ask for a recount, and so recount happened. And when the recount was done, all Republican candidates got 300 votes more. The three of the Democratic candidates get about 30 votes more. And the, the woman who asked for recount lost 99 votes. Hmm. Nothing changed. So this is still still same people got elected. Actually, okay. this does make the, the Republicans to be more winners. And in New Hampshire, it whenever you do recount, Everybody gets more votes. And that's because people are not following the instructions. Instead of filling the bubble, they are Mm. circling the name or doing something which the voting machine doesn't know what Mm. to do, but the human will know this is a voter intent. But the assumption would have been they get, you know, about 30 votes more, not 300. So they Mm. got a lot more votes. And also the fact that minus 99 votes, that was also a problem. So this whole thing was, there's two reasons why this is a very unusual. Also, this was the biggest numerical discrepancy in the history of the recounts in New Hampshire, which tells how tight these are because they do a lot of recounts. Mm. So that was where we were investigating. We found in the investigation the problem. And the problem was that in that small town, when uh, coronavirus has limited the number of people who can be in the office, and they had a massive request for mail-in ballots, they were falling behind of sending their mail-in mm. ballots out. And then all of a sudden someone had remembered, wait a minute, we rented a paper folding machine for DMV, and it has been 
folding the, the, the invoices to DMV and sending, why don't we use that? So they took that folding machine and they started using it without calibrating it. Uh, the paper was perforated. So if human folds it, it always folds in the right place and the folding is mm. in the safe zone. It doesn't hit the voting targets. But the machine is strong enough that it can fold it in the wrong place. So it folded it so that the folding went through the uh, the Republican candidate woman's vote target. Oh, wow. Now, the Secretary of State had tested this and had found out that the folding cannot cause the folding. And that there was something what they didn't know. So we, we found out that it depends which direction you fold it, whether you fold it up or down. Only up folding creates a, huh. a bump, which can be red. So... They didn't know in the Secretary of State, did they fold both ways? But I, my assumption they folded, but they didn't know the difference between wow. whether you fold it up and down. So how the logic works is that now is that if you voted for all four Republicans and the folding went through her vote target, it created about 44% of the time a false vote for her and that created overvote. Oh. So if you vote more, more candidates than you, you allowed, then all the votes are, are zero. So that's how the 300 happened. Interesting. And again, if you voted for less than four candidates and you didn't vote for her, now it can create a fandom vote for her. So that's why the other 100 votes went away from her is because of that, those fandom votes. And there was an additional thing, which was a printing dust inside of the machine. We found out that these machines, even when they have been paying maintenance, have not been cleared for mm. years. So again... That was an amplifying effort. The, the printing dust called offset dust, it cannot create this problem, but it, can, it amplifies the problem. Anyway, so this is a good example. So we knew there's a problem. We found the problems, the roots cause. We were able to find out that it cannot affect anything else that if, if the folding is not there, it cannot affect that. And we found out that it affected about 40 votes in the governor's race. Again, didn't change anything there. We asked the question, is anyone else using folding machines? No, we don't use. So we were able to isolate that this was a complete conspiracy of coincidences. This was so many things. Actually, the one thing was that the folding machine was broken. It didn't fold it diagonally. And if, if they would have been correct, it probably would have been wow. caught earlier because it would have damaged the ballot. Mm. So again, we yes, definitely there was a result which was wrong, but it didn't change the outcome. And the same thing when, when we have been investigating other claims, the problems are real, but we haven't found something which is enough in this to change the outcome. And there have been a previous places where voting system has been producing so humongously erroneous results that it had been trigger a, a recount and, and be found when it changed the outcome. So again, we need to improve these systems and Wrong results happen, but they are not enough that it changed the outcome. And again, like in this case, the, one of the other important things, this was not malicious. This mm. was a freak accident mm. which happened. But again, if, if you, you run an election, the problem is that if you don't have the paper ballot to investigate, you cannot investigate. Right. And these systems are vulnerable, and there are multiple ways of hacking them. And actually, the newer systems have more opportunities for attackers, whether you are used, you're talking about electronic poll books or especially ballot marking devices, which are using a barcodes to represent your vote. So there are more opportunities there. So we really have to work hard and address the real vulnerabilities before they get exploited.
And this is something, if we don't address this, those will be eventually exploited by someone, whether it's a foreign state or whether it's a domestic group, it doesn't matter. It, we need to address this. We need to improve the system. And at the same time, remember that even no matter how much we improve it, we still have to always verify the results because everything can be hacked. And that's why we we have been for a decade now. Tell, we know the result, the, 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 the solution. Solution is handmarked paper ballot and mandatory risk limiting audit. That's the solution. So we really need to improve the system, make, make better voting system, better machines, and also go in the direction where we make the voting accessible to everyone. And we go to handmark paper ballots, risk and orders. And, and I think one, one thing that I want to also uh, stress here, voter apathy is as dangerous to democracy as uh, somebody falsifying yeah. the results. Right. So nothing said should ever be thought that this is a reason to not vote or discouraging the voting. If you are eligible to vote, please vote and vote through the ballot. Don't only fill the top race, we'll right. fill through the ballot. That's very important. Always participate. Democracy is all about participation. Me, I'm agreeing, and we all, uh, security experts, are, are always trying to remember the people and, and make clear that nothing here should be discouraging. There are good things happening. We are improving. We are making certain that everybody's vote count, who you know eligible to vote. That's very important. So right. always participate. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. And a, and a trust in our election is is crucial, and it's it's often kind of intangible and subjective. But I want to, and I want to return to that. But before we do, I want to make sure I, I pin down what we just I think decided is that the crucial elements to having an election system that people can trust and verify and feel good about is kind of having a zero trust approach to the hardware and the software, because there's always going to be potential bugs there. You've shown that multiple times, multiple ways, you and other people. So the two factors that are crucial are that we have paper ballots that are voter verifiable. I can see who I voted for. Anybody else can look at that same ballot and verify who I voted for after the fact. It's, we have a literal paper trail. And two, we test and verify at the end. We have these, what, what you're calling risk-limiting audits, which is to say that we go back when it's all said and done, and we can show statistically that the vote outcome is probably correct. And if it's, if it looks fishy, we can dig further. So I want to, we've talked a lot about risk limiting audits, but it's kind of an important thing. Somebody actually came up with this idea. It sounds like a simple concept, but there's actually statistics behind that. If you could just kind of briefly walk us through what a risk limiting audit means and how it functions. So, yes. So first of all, there's a one more element, which is a procedural, which is the governance of the paper. So you have to have a good governance of yeah. the paper. So the current risk limiting audit is a is, is was coined by Professor Philip Stark. He's professor of statistics in UC Berkeley. Uh, there are a number of other people, uh, notable professors who have been helping in this. For example, Professor uh, uh, Ron Rivast from MIT, mm-hmm. who is a, a cryptographer and RSA the, fame, yeah. Uh, RSA. So there, there's a lot of science and proven science, and there have been long conversations. Risk limiting audit itself is not only one method. There are a number of different ways to do it, and you should uh, every state and should be looking into their own procedures. What is the best way of conducting? I'm explaining two different ways of doing risk limiting audit. One way is is possible in some places. The second place is is possible in almost always. So if you have a voting system which tells you how each ballot was interpreted, called cast vote record. What do you do is you pick up a random ballot, and this is crucial. 
random ballots. If the ballots are not random, if they are chosen, then this cannot be worked. You have to find a random ballot. And this is a wonderful thing, for example, for a public meeting, rolling the dice, rolling the dice. Choose it so that everybody knows this is randomly chosen ballots. After that, you find a record, say how the voting machine interpreted this. You find this actual piece of paper and you verify that those both things are the same. And you go until you have the predetermined confidence level that the outcome is right. And if you don't get that confidence level, that means you have to go to recount. That's really where it goes. So you, you either are getting your confidence or not. And in risk-limiting audit, it's a common misconception, for example, said in, in Florida, that risk-limiting audit is about confirming the winner. No, it's not. Risk-limiting audit is assuming that the result is wrong and then proving that your assumption that it's wrong is, mm. is incorrect. Okay. So this is not confirmation bias. This is not, mm. I want to do this work to show that I did a good job. No, you are starting by assumption, this mm. went wrong, and then you are finding whether you write it's wrong or whether you are always, this is not confirmation bias. This is about finding it. The second way of doing this, if you don't have a cast vote record, you have to pull more ballots, but you still do the same thing. You pull up the random ballots, and once you get the ballots out and you are telling, you have a predetermined model how many ballots you have to uh, go through, which is a function of how many ballots there are in the population, and also what was the marching of victory. Mm -hmm. So then you march through the same path, telling the random ballots until you meet, meet the criteria that this proves that now it's 99.9% .9 certain that the outcome of the election is right. The mathematics is so staggering how little the numbers is that it actually is a uh, something where I would say that never go to 99%, always go to 99.9%. It's more work. But for example, uh, the recent uh, recall election in California, mm -hmm. uh, because the margin of victory was so large, it was calculated that in order to verify with a 99%, just 99% accuracy that the outcome of the election was right, you would have only needed to inspect about 130 ballots in whole state. Out of wow. that, about 30 ballots to be from LA County. Wow. That's it. That's why people are having a trust issue mm. to risk limiting audit, because if the matching of victory is large, the number of ballots you have to inspect to have a high confidence is so mind-bogglingly low <laughs> It defies your common sense. Right. So that's why I say, well, go to 99.99% because at least you do more work and that is right. showing that more was done. But yeah, that's that's really how how easy it is. Of course, when your margin of victory is small, it can be small enough that the risk limit audit is not anymore. It, it, you rather than do the whole recount anyway, mm. because when the mix, margin of victory is small and the pilot population is low, it's easier than just to go and and mm. do the whole recount. Sure. But, you know, it really depends on the outcome and, and size of the jurisdiction. All right. So a couple more things before we go. And I, and I know this is going to be kind of controversial and I try not to get too political, but it, it's unfortunately right now that's kind of where we're at. And that is there are a lot of people, particularly on the Republican side in the United States, who believe that the last election was rigged and was not correct, that the wrong person won the election. And 
many different states, they have conducted what they are calling audits to show that this is the case, that there was a problem. And so we've spent all this time talking about how audits are the way to go and audits are what we need to do to verify these elections and and reinstall trust in our elections. (laughs) So given that, are they asking for the right things? Are they doing the right things to show that this election was right? And why don't we trust the, the election? First of all, I'm always promoting that you conduct an audit. So that, that's one thing. But not all audits are born equal. Mm. So audit is a defined process. When you do an audit the right way, you know exactly how long it takes and you are following the procedures, which are time-honored. We have had a fraud on paper since papyrus was invented thousands of years ago. Right. So we, we really know paper very well. You don't need to come up with a completely new ideas. If you are suspecting that the paper is wrong, well, Secret Service is responsible in the United States for counterfeit money. They know a lot about paper. Right. <laughs> so, so you don't need to come with a crazy new ideas of how, what do you do, because we know how to do it. And just to give you an idea, when we did the New Hampshire audit, we actually counted every ballot five times in that audit. Every ballot was counted five times. Wow. Four times with the four different machines and once by human mm. so that every ballot was shown on the live stream. So everybody around the world was able to see every single ballot. We had a lot of questions from the audience and whatnot. So the first phase of the audit, we ran, I think, four hours, no, seven hours over the budgeted time, seven hours. Then on the next phase, we catch up and we ended that in one day shorter time. But that gives you, there's no weeks and weeks of unpredictable because you scale the operation, you know what you're doing. So first of all, audit has to be done with the best practices, documented methods. You have to tell uh, what you are doing. Everybody has to be able to follow because the trust is important. Everybody has to be able to follow it mm-hmm. and inspect it. And, and New Hampshire has a great tradition in recounts how... Everybody can stop that if they want. Don't like one ballot, how it's interpreted. You stop it and you take it in the end and you, you process it. That's one thing. So I, I love that. Second thing is once you have had already one audit, asking like second, third audit with the different people and, and coming up with the unproven, undocumented methods, that is just a, that's a show. So I, I think, the, I think the, the answer here is we have been doing election audits Long, long time on a paper. We know how to do it. And once you do it once right, then you know what the result is. Doing it again is is really not uh, helping anything. Also, when you start looking at the things which are nothing to do with the actual election, like this whole conversation about routers was completely nonsensical. If you know anything how the technology works, I mean, it was probably very exciting for people who don't understand technology. But it, 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 it's just doesn't make any sense. Uh, one of the commentaries I I was uh, I was watching in a video when they were showing this signature, uh, a, a so-called expert was saying, well, how the stamp can be underneath the, the, the printing. It's like, well, that's because it's post-present image. It's called edge detection. From the moment I see the image, I know what, what it is, and I know it's post-present, and hence it can be used as evidence, as you claim. And how you can be an expert, you don't know something what every teenager knows. You know, just ask your teenager then. Uh, so anyway, so there's, a, there's so much things which when you are looking, the other things, 
and you are mis-explaining, which is only serving the purpose of creating more confusion. It's it's not real work. So so audit should always be in fully defined. You do, and by the way, you don't change the procedure. You can change something small, which is not in part of the the, the counting procedure. But once you are once you are going, you are going the way you you dis- define it, and so. Audit should be always documented and, and also explain it. So like what we did in New Hampshire, we first day explained everything we are going to do in the next three weeks. Then every single day we explain what we are going to do that day. And then every single time when we have anything, we stopped and we explain what is right now going on. What, what If there's anything we found, everything anything we changed, we explain that. And again, every single and when we're in different phase, we explain it. So it's all about making sure that observers can observe and have a, a confidence. I have been more observing elections than that or an audit than actually conducting. So I I know what is the frustration if you cannot observe what you are trying to. And I have done that around the world. I mean, Estonia, what not countries. So it, it's it's critical that the observers can have a full transparent view, understand the process, and the process is defined in a way that if anything happens, the observers can spot it. Like we use different color rest and we told the ballots can be moved from one table to another only by person with this kind of west. Hmm. If you see somebody walking around with a ballot with it, without this kind of west, you see something that's going wrong. Hmm. And we use a very bright yellow, a traffic alert, West, so they were they were really standing out. Very easy and simple thing, which is easy to observe. And again, now you are blocking the possibility that ballots will be moving. So you're you're handling the inventory control. The, sa- the same thing is like you want to have an inventory control in audit. You have to make certain that there are not unnecessarily ballots which are outside of the sealed boxes because you want to keep the population of the ballots clean. So there are a lot of processes which which we know how to do, and you just have to follow those. All right. So before we go, uh, one question, I, I'll lie, it's a, probably a compound question, but what do you say to people? And certainly, I'm sure the media have asked you this question, and, and people on the street, when they ask you, how do I how do I trust my elections today? What, what do you tell them when they say, there's so much confusion on these elections, how do I feel good about my the results of this last election and let alone the future elections. And then kind of the compound part of that question is, is we have, our government has a couple laws out there, the, the America first act and the voting, some of the voting rights acts parts that are trying to codify some of these practices, these best practices that we're talking about. Is that the solution? Is it, do we need federal regulations? Is that what it's going to take to have us restore faith in our elections again in the United States? So, uh, on the individual level, uh, first of all, I said, if you if you care, make certain you vote. But if you care a lot, become a poll worker. Uh, first of all, there's always a chronic shortage of poll workers. And especially uh, it's it has been a joke, which hopefully we can break, that the average age of poll workers goes one year older every year. We need more young people in, in, in the area. Yeah. Uh, especially technologically savvy, uh, mm. people who can uh, help the other poll workers but can, can observe if something happens there. So become a poll worker. You get the civic class, You un- then you know how the election is run. You can see what the other people are doing there. And also you can see what the, the monitors are doing so that next time when you hear a news claim, 
well, the, the, these people were seeing and claiming, reporting this signing affidavit. They said, no, I was there. It didn't happen. So anyway, become a poll worker. Mm. Then when it comes to the regulation, we really need a uh, security regulation. Instead of volunteer, volunteer guidelines, we need a real security standards. We need to enforce those standards. And we have to open the system to open research uh, so that not only a testing labs in private can take a look, but you have a larger group, a larger number of people who are independent from voting system vendors, independent from, from the government in that sense, who can inspect and also write the report and saying, this is under oath. It's, I, I, I saw this code. There's nothing to see there. It's, it's, it is confirming with the law and, and, and that's it. I think the, in the sense of procurement, how the voting machines are bought, what you can outsource and what you cannot outsource all of this, there needs to be a new regulations, probably both federal and state level. I want to stress one more thing about the outsourcing companies. So when I've been working with the secretaries of state, one of the first things what happens when you find the companies which are outsourced companies is the regulation will be, you have great laws, let's enforce those. And the reason is that when you are in a place where the election supervisors are elected themselves, there is no job requirement. The job requirement is you won your election and you became an election supervisor. Right. In a number of places, what happens next is that the newly elect- election official doesn't get the understanding of what needs to be done from the Secretary of State, where it should be. Instead of it can be the this outsourcing company or it can be a political pressure group with a number of different reasons, and they are telling what they think the election supervisors should be do, and very often that is nothing to what to do with the law. Mm. So there is a there is a growing need to maybe have a certification program, even if, when you elect an official to have a certification program, so you know what are your roles and responsibilities. What a concept, yeah. And especially that you know what you can and cannot out- outsource, because so many cases, what is found is that the outsourcing extends what is allowed to be outsourced and what is outsourced mm-hmm. is actually by the law required by be, be done in a public meeting or in mm-hmm. a by public officials so, and now it's instead outsourced to have done in secret in somewhere else so again we need to not only have a better regulation more regulation but also start to enforce it and a lot of this is again training most of the election officials are great people and they are trying to do their job mm-hmm. They need more resources. They need more access to training. And they are going out of their way because they care to do the good job and do the right thing. We just need to allow, allow them to do the good job by giving them the training, giving them the knowledge, giving them access to resources so that they can carry out their job the best they can. Well, Hari, I think I may have covered half my questions for you today. <laughs> okay. I, I had so many. Maybe sometime we could uh, pick this up again in the future. But thank you so, so much for doing this. This is so unbelievably important. And uh, I've been dying to do this exact interview for a long time. And I'm glad I got you for this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so glad that I got Hari on the show. Uh, I got the chance to meet him in person when we were at in Las Vegas for DEF CON in August. So it really worked out well. I'm so glad he came on the show. Big, big thanks to Hari for doing this. Now, this was already a long interview. We talked for a long time. And like, like I said to Hari at the end there, I, I had so many more questions we never even got to. So hopefully maybe someday I can bring him back and we could dig into th- those questions. I did have to 
edit this down just for time. So there is some nice, great bonus content that I will pull off out of that that wasn't crucial for the interview, but I will post that for the patrons on Patreon, including what has been dubbed the Hursty Hack. As part of the 2000 election in Volusia County, Florida, there was this weird glitch where during election night, this one precinct actually reported negative 16,000 votes for Al Gore all of a sudden, uh, which caused a lot of mistrust. I mean, it was uh, corrected before, you know, in the recount. But nevertheless, you know, when you all of a sudden see this really weird switch, that, that causes people to worry about the accuracy of the election outcome. Anyway, as part of that original documentary of Hacking Democracy, Hari showed how he could have hacked one of those machines, like the one that was used in Volusia County, Florida, to have a bad result. Now, at the end of the day, because it was the election was basically called by the Supreme Court, they never really got to the bottom of what actually happened in Volusia County. Like I said, though, they did fix that error before counting the votes, but nevertheless, it was troubling. But anyway, uh, again... I think there's a couple of key takeaways from this that I want before I wrap up. And first of all, the vast, vast majority of people who are trying to run these elections are good people who are trying to do the right thing. And I think that was really borne out uh, during all of these lawsuits that were filed trying to show that there were problems with the elections. And there were something like 63 lawsuits that were filed, all of which failed, most of which failed due to lack of evidence. And as Hari was saying, and I'll actually I'm going to quote from their uh, statement here in a minute. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which just wasn't there. And we didn't really talk about this today, but there have been many, many scholarly studies that have shown that, you know, in-person voter fraud is negligibly small. The Washington Post looked at a whole bunch of different studies and looked at a whole bunch of different elections and found that something like, I think the number was like out of a, over a billion votes that were cast, there were only 30 some cases that looked like potentially valid fraud uh, of which only even a handful of those were even prosecuted. It's just vanishingly small. And it's honestly, it's just logistically hard to do. I mean, the penalties are high for, you know, for someone trying to cast, you know, fake ballots. The penalties are really high. And it's hard for any one person to do that. And to coordinate something on the level that would require enough people to vote twice or to try to vote for dead people to actually make a difference, even in some of these really tight races, it's just hard to do. And to coordinate, <laughs> to coordinate all that, it would be impossible for those kind of things not to leak out. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, you know, three people can keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. I mean, there's just no way you could cover up any conspiracy that big involving that many people. So, you know, where you, if you're really going to hack an election, you would go for the tabulating machines or for some sort of a software bug that I could spread onto several machines. Or honestly... What's more effective and what we've actually shown has actually happened is you get people to not vote. You get people to stay home. You, you know, make them mistrust the election or you convince them that their vote doesn't matter. I mean, having somebody stay home and not vote is really as powerful as casting an incorrect vote. So really, as kind of Hari was alluding to there, apathy or mistrust is really one of the bigger enemies here, one of the bigger problems. So real quick, Harry mentioned this letter that was signed by, he said, I think he said 50 people, uh, looks like actually 59 security experts. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's pretty short, but I'm going to read the part that I think really kind of summarizes what we learned today. And by the way, I've interviewed three of those 59 people, Harry being one of them, Bruce Schneier being another, and Barbara Simons, who is at the time the head of verified voting, was another. Okay, anyway, in part, this statement says, 
We and other scientists have warned for many years that there are security weaknesses in voting systems and have advocated that election systems be better secured against malicious attack. However, notwithstanding these serious concerns, we have never claimed that technical vulnerabilities have actually been exploited to alter the outcome of any U.S. election. Anyone asserting that a U.S. election was quote-unquote rigged is making an extraordinary claim, one that must be supported by persuasive and verifiable evidence. Merely citing the existence of technical flaws does not establish that an attack occurred, much less that it altered an election outcome. We are aware of alarming assertions being made that the 2020 election was quote-unquote rigged by exploiting technical vulnerabilities. However, in every case of which we are aware, these claims either have been unsubstantiated or are technically incoherent. To our collective knowledge, no credible evidence has been put forth that supports a conclusion that the 2020 election outcome in any state has been altered through technical compromise. So I think that wraps it up well. The good news here is that we actually know what to do, and we've known what to do for some time. We have people who have researched election security and have all basically come to the same agreement that we have to have voter verifiable paper ballots. As a voter, either I hand mark a ballot so I know what I voted for, or I have a ballot marking device that prints out something that I can look at and validate. And that paper is kept in case we need to go back. It's not sufficient that we have a system that is tamper evident, that will raise a flag and tell us that something looks wrong. We actually, there's no room for error. We can't re-vote. So we need the system to be robust enough, to be resilient enough, to be transparent enough that after the fact, we can do a risk-limiting audit, which is a statistical scientific process to take a certain number of votes based on the margin of victory and the number of votes that were cast to find out with high confidence whether or not the result was correct. And so we need that paper trail. We need the actual pieces of paper that some human can come back to after the fact and verify that what the computer said was accurate. And what indirectly that means as part of that is we also need good governance, as uh, Harry said, which is, you know, we need chain of custody to be preserved. We need basically to almost kind of treat elections like a crime scene. We need to follow good forensic evidence handling procedures to make sure that, you know, nothing's been tampered with. And after the fact, we can go back and figure out what really happened. Now, there's plenty of other things we could do <laughs> that have nothing to do with directly with the election systems that need to be fixed. We, you know, for instance, we really need to get the money out of politics. You know, all of our elections should be publicly funded. There should be no way for anybody to buy an election or buy a representative by funding their campaigns. When we vote, it should be a national holiday. No one should have to skip work uh, in order to pay. You know, so do we pay people the tougher of the time off to vote? however long that takes, because we've certainly seen situations where it could be hours. We need a lot more early voting and easy access to voting. We should be looking at things like ranked choice voting. If you haven't looked at that, look that up on the internet. That's interesting. Obviously, you know, redist redistricting. We need independent, nonpartisan redistricting. Gerrymandering is a real problem. And simply, we need a lot better training. We need funding for that training for the poll workers and for the election officials. There's a lot of things we need to be doing. By the way, a lot of the bills in front of Congress right now are trying to do those very things. And also, I will completely echo what Harry says, uh, consider becoming a poll worker. I remember doing that as a kid in high school. My girlfriend's parents were really big into politics, and 
So she took a day off, uh, a sanctioned day off high school to go work the polls. And I went with her because I was her boyfriend, but I learned a lot. It was, I thought it was fascinating. I actually tried to uh, be a poll worker last year, but by the time I had applied, they actually had gotten enough people. So uh, I will do that again for the next election, especially now that I've retired. That's a way for me as a technically savvy and concerned citizen to, you know, contribute to the cause. And I recommend that you all at least consider doing the same. So I've got plenty of links in the show notes. If you really want to see how an election audit is supposed to be run, look at the report that Harry and his team did for that New Hampshire one. I've got a link in the show notes to that. I've also got links to some of the other, you know, voting system reports that were done. The California top to bottom one he talked about, the Ohio Everest one that he talked about. I've got links to uh, the Kill Chain documentary on HBO, uh, the YouTube one for the Hacking Democracy, because I think that's the only place I could find it. Oh, I think you can rent it on Apple TV, but if you just want it for free, get it on YouTube. And then lots of other interesting links. So plenty of good stuff in the show notes if you want to go further. Next week, we're going to have my annual best and worst gift guide show, along with whatever news is fit to uh, talk about next week. I've got some really interesting interviews in the pipeline. I'm not sure what order they're going to come in yet, but I've got some fun ones on the way for that. And I've got some really cool news for DEF CON next year, but that's really early on in the early stages. And uh, when that becomes a little more definite, uh, definite, I will tell you more about that, probably in the spring. So that's it, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Subscribe if you haven't. Love to get reviews on the book and the podcast if you got a chance. And if I find those, I will read them here on the air. Stay safe, everybody. Take care. Get those shots. Get those boosters. Help other people get theirs. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your droppage down. Music.